Jeremiah 18 is our passage. There are notes in the bulletin if you'd like to track along with the message this morning. We'll start with a little bit of history. One of the things I told you several weeks back when we started Jeremiah is that this book is not strictly chronological. It doesn't move directly from point A to point B in time. And so as we go through the book, it's helpful to constantly find our bearings and think about where we're at in the storyline. So this passage, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah in this passage likely came during the reign of King Jehoiakim. And he reigned roughly from 609 to 598 BC. If you rewind the tape all the way to chapter one, Jeremiah the prophet dates himself with the reign of three kings. He says, the word of the Lord came to me during the reigns of Josiah, during the reigns of Jehoiakim, and during the reigns of Zedekiah. These are the last three kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. Josiah was a good king. He was a great king, one of the best kings. He loved the Lord. He led a revival in Israel, it was an important revival because the people were about to be sent into exile. All of the familiar trappings of religion were about to be taken away from them. And this revival prepared many of these people for exile. He instituted reforms in Israel. We'll talk about some of those later in the message. He was followed by Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was wicked. He was really, really, really wicked. All of the reforms and all of the things that Josiah put in place to lead God's people to the true worship of Yahweh, Jehoiakim intentionally and systematically undid all of them. And he led the people right back in to idolatry. It was likely during the reign of Jehoiakim that this story took place, Jeremiah 18, 19 and 20. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, likely during the reign of Jehoiakim, and sent him to the potter's house. Potter's house. When I say potter's house, you probably think about the place down the street where you take your elementary kids for a birthday party, and they pick a piece of pottery off the shelf, and then they get a paintbrush, and they paint it, and then you leave it, and they uh, fire it, and they glaze it, and then you come back later, and you say, oh, look at this beautiful work of art that my eight-year-old created. I've never seen anything so beautiful in all my life. That's not what Jeremiah thought when the Lord sent him to the potter's house. In Jeremiah's day, the potter's house was a place of societal significance and cultural significance. It wasn't just a place for children's birthday parties societal significance. We don't think about pottery as technology. We think about it as something you do for children's birthday, but it was really an important piece of technology in the development of culture and society. Until pottery was developed, people only thought about their very next meal. And then suddenly when people began making pottery, they said, hey, we could save some of this and not eat all of it today and we could actually eat it tomorrow. And rather than wandering around and chasing food, we could stay in one place and we could grow crops and we could bring in a harvest and we could store some of it and then it would feed us throughout the year. We wouldn't have to wander around like nomads. This was an important technological development. It had societal significance and it had cultural significance because from the very beginning, when we dig up these archaeological sites from the Near East, all of these potters decorated their pottery. 
it wasn't just function, it was also art and it was beauty and it was things that were pleasing to look at and it was things that were involved in telling stories that passed down the faith of a certain people. So this was an important place. When the Lord says to Jeremiah, go to the potter's house, this was an important place that he was sending him. The whole section, 18, 19, 20, is held together with this theme of pottery. It's a single unit that centers on the theme of pottery. And the story takes place. Here's the setting. It's in Jerusalem. Everything's in Jerusalem. It starts off at the potter's house. Then we move to the city dump. Then we move to the temple. And then eventually we end up in prison. That's a remarkable story. One that starts at the potter's house and moves to the dump and then back to the temple of Yahweh and eventually to prison. We're going to try to cover all that ground this morning. Here's the big idea of our passage, of the entire section, but certainly the verses that we're looking at. God is sovereign. We could just put a period right there. That would be a true statement. God is sovereign. He rules over everything, all things, all people, every situation, past, present, future. He is sovereign. But the specific emphasis in this passage is that God is sovereign in salvation and in judgment. He is in complete, unrivaled control over the salvation of his people and the judgment of sinners. It's an important truth. It's a truth that is told in a remarkable story. It's a truth that God's people struggled to make sense of in Jeremiah's day. Here's something you need to know about Jeremiah in Jerusalem when he's preaching. Most of the people, wicked, pagan, idol-worshiping people, talked about the Lord, Yahweh. They didn't hate Yahweh. At least they wouldn't have told you that they hated Yahweh. They believed the Lord was a God, and they believed that he should be worshiped in some way, shape, or form. But their faith in Yahweh was sort of mixed up and muddied up with the animism and the spiritism and the magic of all the peoples who lived around them. And essentially, they thought about God as a force, not a person. They thought that because Yahweh, the Lord, had made a covenant with Judah, with these people in Jerusalem, with these priests that operated the temple, they thought that God's hands were tied when it came to judgment, meaning God had promised to bless these people and live with them in this temple, and they thought, well, that's never going to change. It doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter what we do or don't do. God has made a promise, and he's bound by it. He can't do anything about it. He has contractually tied his own hands. And Jeremiah would preach all of these messages of warning, and the people would say, Jeremiah, the temple. We have the temple. Calm down. God's not going to destroy the temple. He can't destroy the temple. It's his temple, Jeremiah. They're thinking about God in terms of animism and magic as if he were an impersonal force rather than thinking about Yahweh, the Lord, as a person that they were to have a relationship with. He's not just a force, like you say the magic words and the spell is cast. He's a person, and he has a relationship with his people. In fact, many times in the Old Testament, God describes this relationship as a marriage. He's bound himself in this marriage relationship with these people. And what these people needed to understand is that in this relationship that they were supposed to have with the Lord, with Yahweh, 
they were not relating as equals. There was a creator and there were creatures. There was a God and there were his people. There was a sovereign and there were subjects. And they'd gotten everything all out of wax because their worldview had just been mixed up with all of the things that the peoples around them believed. Jeremiah is trying to remind the people that God is a person that they should relate to and that he is sovereign over salvation and over judgment. Look at this explanation from Phil Reichen. He says, the doctrinal point of this passage can be stated very simply. God can do whatever he wants with you. We just stop right there. That's a pretty good summary of God's sovereignty. He can do whatever he wants. Period, end of sermon, altar call, let's go to lunch. This is what it means for him to be God. Because God is God, he's free to do whatever he pleases. In his hands rest all power, rule, authority, kingdom, government, dominion. This is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Reichen goes on to say this. Some people don't care for this doctrine. That's true. Others tremble at it. Some may even oppose it but it cannot be denied. Human beings are not on equal terms with God. He is the creator. We are the creatures. God is the absolute sovereign. All others are totally subservient. If you don't like it from the mouth of Pastor Phil Riken, maybe you like it from the mouth of another prophet who lived before Jeremiah. His name was Isaiah, and he says it like this. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, the thing that made should say of its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? He's the potter. You're the clay. Are you going to talk back? To your creator, he's the sovereign one. Isaiah says it like this in chapter 45. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. You can imagine the pot looking up saying, why didn't you give me a handle? What kind of pot do you think this is? It's a preposterous notion. Isaiah tried to remind the people they didn't listen. God is sovereign. Here's Jeremiah, many years later, reminding people of the same thing that they have forgotten. One of the things that we as a people have forgotten about the Lord God today, and that is that he is absolutely sovereign, specifically over the salvation of his people and also the judgment of his enemies. Okay, here's the first truth. What do we learn from the potter's house? Truth number one, God is our creator. I make you fill that blank in and many of you say, what, what is this, preschool? What is this, vacation Bible school day one? Listen, that is a truth about God that millions of people on earth today have forgotten and suppressed and pushed away and rejected. God is the creator. It's what Jeremiah learns when he shows up in verse three and he sees a potter in the ESV, it says that he is working at his wheel. What it literally says is he's working at the wheels. Now, I'm not going to try to give you a visual. You can YouTube this later. Don't YouTube it now. YouTube it later. This is the ancient method of pottery that Jeremiah is talking about. There were two wheels. One wheel sat close to the ground, and the potter would sit down, and with his feet, this is a part I'm not going to try to demonstrate, he would spin the wheel. 
He'd get it going with his feet, and he would keep it going with his feet. In the middle of that wheel, there was a pole that came up, and it was attached to another wheel on the top, two wheels, bottom wheel, top wheel, one for the feet, one for the hands. And on the top wheel, he would throw pottery. He would spin pottery, and he would work the clay up on top. So he walks in, and he sees the potter at the wheels, at the wheel, no generator running this pottery wheel for him. His feet are running it, and he is making something with the clay. It's a very simple reminder, the same reminder you see in Isaiah, that God is the potter, we are the clay. He's the creator, we are the creature. This is a lesson as old as Genesis 2 and 3. The Lord God molded and shaped and formed man from the dust of the ground out of clay, and then he breathed into him and he became a living being. Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, God looks at his people taken from the dirt, from the clay, and he says, you came from dirt and now you're going back to the dirt. You're dirt. He's the creator. It's what the rock and roll band Kansas sang about when they sang Dust in the Wind. Not a very theologically accurate band on the whole, But they're right about that. That's what human beings are, just dust, just dirt, just clay, and it's just blowing in the wind. You're here today, you're gone tomorrow, your life is a mist, it's a vapor, you're just dirt. If you're a Trekkie, I'm not a Trekkie, but on Star Trek, they talk about humans as if they're carbon units. Human beings, just carbon units, just dirt. Here today, gone tomorrow. That's the first thing Jeremiah is reminding the people of as he finds himself in the potter's house. God's the potter, we're the clay. He's the creator, we're the creature. Truth number two, potter's house reminds us that sin ruins God's design. Something has happened so that the design and the intention and the plans of the potter have gone awry. Verse four, the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in his hand. That's what sin does. It spoils what God designed. It ruins what God designed. What God says is very good and what God blesses, sin runs away from that and ruins it and spoils it. It's maybe the greatest tragedy of the place and the time that you and I live in. It's really not unique to human history, but you see it on display every single day in the United States of America. People running away angrily from the creator who designed us. He's the creator. He designed it. He had intentions. He had plans. He knows what is good and what is not good. He blessed certain things. And people today literally running in the other direction. So much so that now we have a month to celebrate our running in the other direction in just one example of what we do as human beings. And we boast about it and we brag about it and we wave flags about it. Sin ruins God's design, ruins it. It's a tragedy that there are so many people, you know them and I know them, they're looking into their heart And they find whatever desire is there in their heart. And they make that the cornerstone, the foundation of their identity. You know what Jeremiah says is in your heart? Wickedness and deceitfulness beyond description. 
you shouldn't find that wickedness and deceitfulness and make it the foundation stone of who you are as a person. You should see it for what it is and run away from it to the creator and to his design. But that's not what sin does. Sin ruins and spoils God's design. Thirdly, what do we learn at the potter's house? We learn that God is the judge. He's the judge. We'll come back to the end of verse 4. But look at verse 5. The word of the Lord came to me. Up to this point, he's been watching. He's been learning. He's been thinking. He's been taking it in. The potter with the wheels, and he's making a pot, and it's spoiled, and yes, he reworks it. But then the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. And then verse 7, 8, 9, and 10, God says, look, Jeremiah, please go tell the people that I am not some impersonal force that's going to have his spiritual hands tied because of some promise I made. I am a person relating to these people. And Jeremiah, I want you to tell the people this. God says, if I say I'm going to destroy a people and they repent, well, I can relent of the destruction. I don't have to destroy them. I can let them live. It's the book of Jonah. And likewise, Jeremiah, if I say I'm going to bless a people, build a people, establish a people, protect a people, and they turn away from me and refuse to listen to me, I can relent of the good that I had promised to do those people. Jeremiah, these people think of me like some magnetic force that just moves in one direction. Jeremiah, I'm a person. And as a person, I'm the judge. I'm God, I'm the creator, I'm the judge, Jeremiah. I can relent of the good, I can relent of the destruction. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 is a poignant reminder of this truth. It says, here's the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Someday you will stand before the judge, you, on your own merits. And you'll give an account of everything, every word, every thought, every emotion, good or evil. None of it will be hidden from the Lord on that day. That is a terrifying prospect unless you understand this truth. One more truth at the potter's house. God is the redeemer. Yes, he's the judge. He is also the redeemer. Look at the end of verse 4. Vessel he was making of clay was spoiled and he reworked it into another vessel. He didn't just throw it out. He didn't just file 13 it. He didn't just hit delete. He didn't just do away with it. He reworked it into what he wanted it to be. It's a picture of God. Yes, he's the judge, and many of us have forgotten that he's the judge. But we also need to remember that he's the redeemer. And he is not quick to discard of the people that he created in his image. He is a God who reworks what sin destroys. Look at this list of words, words that in the Bible describe our salvation. Rewords, redemption. That's God buying us back. We were his, we sell ourselves to the lowest bidder, and God in his grace and his mercy comes and buys us back. Redemption, restoration. So what sin ruins and spoils, God restores it back to wholeness and goodness 
reconciliation. We're created to relate to God, but sin makes us God's enemy, and reconciliation reminds us that God has brought us back into a right relationship with him. Regeneration. We're given life, but sin leads to death, and God in his grace and his mercy gives new life, new birth. That's regeneration. He is a God who reworks what has been spoiled and ruined by sin. Some of you doubt whether or not God can do that in your life. You feel the weight of what you've done, what you've said, what you've thought, and you're not quite certain certain that God can or will rework it. And this verse in verse 4, Jeremiah 18.4, is a beautiful verse. The potter takes what is spoiled and he reworks it as he sees fit to what he thinks is good. God can do that in your life. God does that in lives every day. God does it in an ongoing way in the lives of his people, continuing, continuing to mold and to shape them into who he would want them to be. So that's our passage. I want to summarize the rest of the story for you because it's a great story, and we can't just dig into every piece, but I want you to see the, the highlights. Here's the rest of the story in Jeremiah 18, 19, and 20. It ends with this call to repent. And look at verse 12. Here's what the people say. The people respond and say, that's in vain. We will follow our own plans and will every one act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. That's one way to respond to God's word. No, that's foolish. And we are just going to persist in the stubbornness and the wickedness of our heart. They just embrace their sin. And they say, Jeremiah, we will not listen to you. We're just going to call evil good. And if you want to call it evil, fine. We'll call it evil. This is the direction that we're heading. They absolutely refuse to listen to the truth, to listen to God's word. Verse 18, it gets worse. There's an unholy trinity that forms against Jeremiah. He talks about three groups of people. Number one, he says the priests are part of this group, this cabal. Number two, he says the wise people are part of this group. And number three, he talks about the prophets, the priests, the wise men, and the prophets. And they gather together, verse 18, against Jeremiah to oppose him with their tongue. So they're going to slander Jeremiah. They're going to lie about Jeremiah. They're going to start a PR campaign opposing what Jeremiah is saying. When you think about that group, priests, wise men, prophets, one Bible commentator said it like this, it would be like today... Maybe you can imagine this. The government, the academy, and the media were all in cahoots. Why are you laughing? The political powers, the quote-unquote smartest people in the room, and the people who control communication, all opposing the truth of God's word. That's what it was like in Jeremiah's day. He can relate to where we live and when we live. Look at chapter 19, verse 1 and 2. Jeremiah is sent back to the potter's house and he is told to buy something called a bakbuk. Bakbuk. I'm going to let you say it on the count of three. You ready? One, two, three. That's not bad. Better than the first service. They were still sleeping, I think. A bakbuk. This is not the first time God sent Jeremiah to buy something. I kind of regret that we left this out of our summer series, and so I'm going to revisit it 
in one minute. Jeremiah 13. Jeremiah is sent to buy, are you ready for this? A loincloth. Underwear. Okay? Go to Walmart. Buy a pack of Hanes. So he goes. He buys a loincloth. And God says, take it to the Euphrates River. That's a long ways from Jerusalem, by the way. Take it to the Euphrates River. Dig a hole in the bank. Bury it there and leave it. So he goes and he buys it. And then he goes to the Euphrates. And he digs a hole and he buries it and he leaves it. And then many days later, God says, Jeremiah, go back for it. Dig it up and find it. See what it looks like. It's been there many days in the bank of this river. And he pulls it out, and it's just in tatters. It's gross. It's soiled. It's dirty. It's nasty. He's, I, what is this good for? God says, exactly. That's what idolatry has done to my people. It's made them like a ruined loincloth. Pretty strong language. Here God says, go buy a bok book. This is what it looks like, just to give you an idea. It's a pitcher for water. And they would fill it up with water. The potter would make this, and nice of him to add a handle this time. He puts a handle on it. You notice the neck of it is very skinny. Some of you think I'm about to make this up. This is the honest truth. Bakbuk, the name for this pitcher, is an onomatopoeia. It means it sounds like the thing it's describing. When you pour water out of one of these things, you know what it sounds like? Bakbuk, 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 bakbuk. That's why they call it a bakbuk. This is very insightful, I know, life-changing truth. So God says, go buy a bakbuk, a pitcher, take it from the potter, brand new. So he goes and he buys it. And then God says, I want you to take it to the valley of the son of Hanam. It's a place outside of Jerusalem. It's a place that decades earlier, the kings of Judah would take their children and offer them, offer their children as a blood human sacrifice to Molech and Baal. It is a place of great wickedness, incredible wickedness. Such great wickedness that when a young man named Josiah took the throne, he not only put an end to the child sacrifice in the valley of the son of Hanam, but he turned that place into the city dump. And he said, take all your trash, all your refuse, all your filth, and dump it in that place because we are never going back there to do that again. God says to Jeremiah, you're at the potter's house, buy this bakbuk, take it to the valley of the son of Hinnom. To get out there, he had to pass through the potsherd gate. It's called the potsherd because it was filled with shards of pottery. It was people going to the dump, I think living in Odessa, you can imagine this sort of thing happening. They're going to the dump. They don't want to walk all the way out to the valley. So they look around and they say, no one's looking. I'll just drop it here on the road out to the dump. And all along this road from this gate, the potsherd gate, all the way out to the dump, there's just trash and garbage. And they would probably have a clean up Jerusalem day and they would go out and volunteers would pick it all up. But then people would go right behind them and they would leave their trash again. So the potsherd gate, it's the garbage gate going out to this valley. Jeremiah goes out there. He's got his brand new bok book and God says, smash it. Jeremiah's thinking, man, I'm already down a loincloth. I had to buy this thing. God says, smash it on the ground. So he's got this group of people who have followed him, 
and he takes his brand new pitcher and he smashes it on the ground and he looks at the people and he says, that's what God's gonna do to Judah. Remember, we read back in verse 18, I'm shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. God says, here's what that plan's gonna look like. It's gonna look like a brand new Bach boot being shattered on the ground. And then he turns around, Jeremiah turns around and he marches to the temple from the potsherd gate back to the temple and he's preaching. And he's probably reminding the people that God is not a force and that God is the judge and God is the creator and all of these things. He's the potter, we're the clay. He's devising evil against you. He's gonna destroy the people. When he gets to the temple, a man named Peshur has heard enough. Peshur is the priest in charge of the temple complex. So he's part of that unholy trinity, the priests and the wise men and the prophets. He's in on that group and he's listening to Jeremiah preach and he's just had enough. And so the text says that he does three things to Jeremiah. Number one, he seizes him. means he formally, officially arrests him. Number two, he beats him. Meaning, at this point in history, Jewish history, 40 lashes. Not the 40 lashes less one, that came later. Just the full 40. Beats the snot out of him. Then, in the ESV, it says he put him in the stocks. That probably doesn't mean his head and his hands in the wooden thing in the middle of the village for everyone to look at and spit on and make fun of. It probably means some sort of solitary confinement in the temple complex. That's what happens to the prophet who smashes the bakbuk and preaches the word of God. Arrested, beaten, put in solitary. The next day he gets out and he immediately has a conversation with the Lord about everything that's happened. It's not a great end to the story all in all. It's a sad story for Jeremiah. It's a sad story for the people. When Jeremiah has this conversation with with the Lord, it's a lament, and we've talked about lament in Jeremiah. He is passionately expressing his grief to God, so much so that one of the things Jeremiah says to the Lord is, I feel like you've taken advantage of me, and you've done wrong by me. I'm just breaking the pottery I bought and telling the people what you want me to tell them, and I end up beaten and imprisoned with a criminal record. He's not happy with the Lord. One of the things Jeremiah says to the Lord is, I'm done talking for you. I'm just going to shut it up, and I'm not going to say it anymore. I'm not going to speak your words anymore. And then as soon as he says that, he comes back and he says, but I know I can't. Your word is like a fire burning in my chest, and I can't contain it. I have to say it. And in the end of this lament, he looks to the Lord, and he says, you are God. You are worthy of worship, and I trust you even if it means I end up back in the stocks, even if it means I end up getting beat again, even if it means I have to speak up and I know there's gonna be a consequence. That's the end of the story. That's Jeremiah's experience at the potter's house. Not super encouraging, not super uplifting, but an important message that the people needed to hear and a message that we need to hear. Here's how we apply it. The question is, God is sovereign, Sovereign over salvation and judgment. The question for you is, how will you respond to the word of the Lord? There are only two possible options. Option number one, you can reject God's word and you will experience his vengeance. That's the word that Jeremiah uses in verse 12, chapter 20. The vengeance of God, the anger, the wrath, the judgment of almighty God. You reject his word, you will experience his vengeance. 
If you heed his word, you listen to it, you respond appropriately, you'll experience his deliverance. Those are the only two options. Those are the only two options set before the people in Jeremiah's day under the reign of Jehoiakim. Those are the only two options for you today in 2021 in Odessa, Texas. To reject the word of God and know that vengeance is in your future or to heed the word of God and to trust that God can deliver you. Jeremiah lived more than half a century, or excuse me, half a millennia before Jesus was born and walked on the earth and lived and died and rose from the dead. We live on this side of the cross. Jeremiah lived on that side. We live on this side. There's things that we see more clearly. We see what you might say, we've already used this term, the rest of the story a bit more clearly than Jeremiah did. So I've given you the rest of the story in 18, 19, 20. Let me just end by reminding you the rest of the story in the Bible, right? Big picture, 30,000 foot, what is the word of the Lord? There is a God. He is uniquely holy, and he is absolutely sovereign over everyone and everything. That's what it means for him to be God. He is in complete control over all things and all people. He created people with a specific design, human beings out of the dust, and he breathed life into them. He created human beings to honor him and glorify him. The Bible says that all of us on this side of the Garden of Eden have sinned against God, and our sin ruins and spoils God's good design for his people and how he's supposed to relate to his people and how his people are supposed to relate to him. It ruins it and it spoils it. Jeremiah says it's like a sickness in our heart that is undescribable, wickedness and deceitfulness. And rather than see it and run from it, we all have this built-in tendency to just run towards it, further away from the creator and his good design. But, but, God's like a master potter. And he's not quick to just throw out a spoiled lump of clay. He delights to rework it, to restore it, to reconcile it, to give it new life, to regenerate it, to redeem it. He reworks it, and this is how. He sent his son, Jesus, and he walked on this earth, and he lived a life of perfect conformity to God's will and God's design for human beings. Never sinned, never and at the end of his life, he died on a cross as a substitutionary sacrifice, taking the vengeance of God that should fall on us and bearing that vengeance in full. He calls you today, some 2,600 years after Jeremiah, some 2,000 years after the cross, he calls you to do two things. One, recognize the sin in your heart Run from it. And number two, run to him in faith. Believe the good news of the gospel. If you do that, he promises regeneration, reconciliation, redemption, restoration. He will rework you into the person that God wants you to be. He can do it. He does it today. And there's only two options when you hear that message. 
That's the word of the Lord, the Bible in summary form. There's two options. One, you can heed that word. You can repent and believe in Jesus, and you will know deliverance from Almighty God. Or, number two, you can reject it, just like the people, and you can say, no, that's a waste. It's all in vain. We will follow our own plans, and everyone will act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. You can do that. Many do. Many people celebrate the fact that they do that. And you know that vengeance is in your future. Those are the two ways that you can respond to the word of the Lord today. My prayer is that you heed God's word, that you turn from your sin, you run from it, and you run to Jesus as fast as you can. If you do that, you'll find deliverance.